0: And this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks, I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk getting to know the person behind the company. For this 19th episode, I talk to John Kim of Sandbird, the user-to-user messaging backend that powers the chat of websites and apps like Reddit. Based on the belief that starting a company was the only way he could do what he loved, John started one of Korea's first startups. He raised money in an environment that I never heard about it and then he was also one of the first to sell his startup to a company outside Korea. After this, John started a community for moms. He raised money for it, pivoted, before that was even a word, uh, to a messaging backend company and he got accepted to Y Combinator. And now he's leading one of the hottest messaging companies around. We talk about his extremely rational way of making decisions. The Korean eco- ecosystem and work ethic, the intrinsic motivation framework, and yet again the regret minimization framework. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, John. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, things are going well. Thank you. You are a f- founder of uh, Sunbirds. Uh, for those who don't know yet, what does Sunbird do? Because it's a bit specific, right?
1: Yep, yep. So uh Sendbird, we are a chat API. We basically power user-to-user messaging uh within mobile applications and websites. So you can think of it as uh use cases in marketplaces where a lot of sellers talk to buyers, or consumer products like online communities like Reddit or gaming places, uh gaming or, you know, dating, as well as some, you know, live video streaming where you chat with other audiences as well.
0: So, yeah, so Sorry. Companies like Reddit are using your software basically to build the chat so they don't do it have to do it themselves, right? Exactly. So Reddit has to be one of
1: our uh, most fantastic customers. Obviously, they're one of, uh, I guess, third largest website in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they've been using us for their user-to-user uh, direct messaging as well as uh, subreddit chat.
0: Yeah. Cool. Uh, how How do you get the idea to start a, a chat backend company? Uh, how 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 does that actually happen? Like, cannot be that yeah. you just uh, figure like, oh, a chat backend company, that would be a nice company to build. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, nothing comes, uh, I guess, that easy. So, when we first started our, our journey in 2013, mm-hmm. uh, we started out as a B2C company, trying to build a community for moms, where you can f- find other moms in your area with similar kids, you know, to play dates, buy and sell, use baby products and whatnot. So, Basically, when we're trying to create this community for moms, and that's exactly the year when, you know, Mary Meeker came out with the report, hey, like messaging is overtaking the world. I think it was around 2014 and 15 when like WhatsApp, Telegram, you know, these kind of apps became the most used apps in the world. So everyone in the industry were trying to see like, what, can, like, what kind of chat experience they can also put into their own application. So, and uh, we, want, we also wanted to add a chat. And we looked around, tried a couple of different open sources. Didn't really, you know, work out the way we wanted. So we also built on top of things like Firebase. Also, didn't quite, you know, had uh, the flexibility and the feature, rich feature set that we also wanted. So we ended up scratching all that and building everything from the ground up ourselves. And uh, well, the truth is, you know, we were running out of money. We had a couple of know, hundred thousand users, but it wasn't the next Facebook. So uh, it, it was sort of hard to see ourselves you know, getting into a proper Series A with that amount of traction. While uh, on the sideline, we had a lot of you know friends in the industry who were looking for uh, or or trying to build a chat themselves. And they, you know, obviously, we were one of the first ones who built a chat among our friend groups, you know, group of entrepreneurs. So they started asking, like, uh, can we use, you know, our technology? We're like, of course not. It's our stuff. And then they're like, we'll pay you. And uh, we, because we had zero revenue and running on money, uh, we thought that was a pretty good, very tempting. <laughs> so we did a mm-hmm. hackathon over a couple of days, pulled it out to SDK, started selling a sideline. And we started out with a terrible pricing. We just asked like, hey, um, how much can you pay me? And like 50 bucks? And they're like, sure. So uh, our first, first customer was like, you know, 49 or $50 a month customer. The next customer we would go and say 150 bucks. And they are like, sure. So we get started <laughs> to... Uh, Get like uh, we had about two dozen customers, uh, within a couple of of months in the early sort of private testing, and then we applied to YC with that idea at the end of 2015. So, think about it's like uh, first two and a half years, uh, we're struggling with this B2C application, and then this small, you know, weekend sort of hackathon thing, uh, sort of became the core idea uh, uh, of our company. So, we completely pivoted. To in 2016, at the beginning of 2016, when we launched in uh, NYC, and then sort of from there, there on, we've been growing pretty nicely. So,
0: yeah. So, how do I have to imagine the company at the point that you decided to pivot from the the community for moms to the the messaging company? Basically, how how big were you? Did you have VC funding or?
1: Yeah, we had a small seed funding.
0: Uh, we had four co-founders. About
1: I think we were about ten, eleven people ish large. Uh, <clears throat> it was a uh, it was I said it like overnight, but it was actually a course of six months of sort of like a careful transition because obviously investors invested in that mom's community app. Uh, people who joined the company were still you know designing products and building product for this mom community app and. I mean, think about it. People who are passionate about B two C are not always passionate about about B two B. Right. Uh, so we had to figure out how do we align ourselves, how do we manage expectations, what is the timeline, what are, how do we validate that this thing can actually fly? So internally, we had some assumptions like, hey, if we get X dollars of revenue or X number of customers, we might have something that works. So we had this, you know, roughly said internal. Goals, and we started asking people around, hey, so we were running two businesses in parallel uh, uh, under the same um, entity. So mm-hmm. We had to moms that we were continuing to roll out features, but a little bit more slowly because now we are you know, pouring a little, little bit of resource into this. We're also starting to warm up our investors during, <clears throat> we had some sort of like a sort of like an informal board meeting uh, where we were talking to our investors uh, quarterly bi-monthly, I think. Uh, and then we're telling them, hey, well, here's a side project we're, we're thinking about. It's nothing serious yet. But if we think it has potential, we'll let you know. And we'll keep updating on that progress. And then once we hit certain you know, milestones and you know, attraction, then we actually told them, you know what, this might be something real. Um, and we're going to start charging. And once we have enough customers, then we'll let you know. So we kept warming them up over the course of six months. And ultimately, you know, getting to YC with that idea, uh, with you know tens of thousands of dollars of whatever revenue, well, it was a pretty good sort of like a signal for us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a course of six dark, long months, sort of.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You're like stuck between between two very different businesses. Did Did yeah. any one of the team leave because of your pivot? Uh, did all the co-founders uh, yeah. stay?
1: Yeah, all of the co-founders are still with the company. Uh, thankfully, they've been very uh, flexible and adapting <laughs> in that manner. A couple of employees that were very specific to B two C applications around like graphic resources and things like that uh, ended up finding other uh, job opportunities. But you know, uh, we we were very careful in communicating that because ultimately we know, and they also accept that you know they won't be uh, happy at a B two B company. Fully focusing on APIs versus uh, community where There's going to be a lot of you know pretty graphics and emojis. So um, we made that transition. So I think around two, one or two people left early on in the company, and maybe one or two more later on. But, but after that, uh, the you know, co-founding and the early engineers uh, left. I uh, mean, stayed with the company. So
0: yeah. <clears throat> That's, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, is that your first startup in the mom community? or No, so this is uh, my second
1: startup. So um, I, ran, I founded my first company, a social gaming company, back in mm-hmm. late 2007. If you think about it, like 2008 was a pretty interesting period uh, with the subprime like, mortgage and whatnot. So the entire market crashed. So there was no funding. Uh, anyway, so we, again, had a sort of like a dark tunnel Of no funding, just trying to you know barely stay alive. Um, But we ran the company for four and a half years, grew to about thirty people large, then we got acquired by Gree, their public company in Japan. Uh, So it was it was an interesting thing where if you just don't give up, uh, good things happen. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we were one of those guys who were spamming you on Facebook along with Zynga and whatnot. So.
0: And and what was the company about? A social gaming company.
1: Yeah, it was a social gaming company. Uh, we ran out of South Korea uh, and then we ran for four and a half years and then sold it. So my co-founders, uh, three of the four co- co- co-founders have been working with uh, me from my previous startup. So we've been working together for, I don't know, like ninth year now. So it's been pretty long.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you started off in South Korea. Uh, yeah, yeah. But now you're based in, uh, in San Francisco, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. bit south of San Francisco, called place called San Mateo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weather is slightly nicer. So yeah, it actually works well yeah. for us.
0: Yeah, the the temperature is a bit uh, a bit lower than in South Korea.
1: Uh, actually, yeah, South Korea is pretty chilly uh, during this time. So uh, during the winter, yeah, yeah, during the winter it's very chilly. During summer it's very hot and humid. So the the volatility is quite high. But you know, California is it's always sunny in California, kind of thing. So. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, is is the the full founding team then also Korean or and are they are they in San Francisco or in or in Seoul or? Yeah, so because we
1: first started out in Korea, uh, for for four co-founding team were all Korean folks. But now, uh, so two of us are here, two of us are back in Korea. Mm-hmm. So we get a good sort of like a balance of culture and people who understand the history and the backstory of the company are you know sort of like evenly spread out across yeah. the region. And then we ended up uh, building out a more senior management team over the course of our company. So we have a CFO and we field sales. We joined our company, uh, I guess in almost, it's almost two quarters now ago, uh, and they're you know they're here local. Uh, and so we've been trying to uh, add, I guess, diversity. It's almost it's weird because we started on Korea. We're now adding uh, adding American people into part of our management team to add diversity. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, that's how we, our team has been evolving.
0: Yeah, and when you started off with your first startup in uh, in, in Korea, was was that a normal thing to do? Because I, I'm currently the Korean government is putting a lot of money into startups, if I'm not mistaken, and they have this this uh, big award thing going on and a big fund, etc. But in oh. 2008, was, was 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 it like that? Wow, that's uh that's very
1: insightful that you're on top of uh, what's happening in Korea. <laughs> uh, so if you look up you know, Korean media back in 2007, eight, even maybe around nine, uh, no major media ever used the word called startup." So that was how raw it was. It was called venture companies back then. Uh, so there was not a lot of resource or not a lot of people to ask, of course, there were companies who started out you know way back in whether it be .com or before, but a lot of them were uh, you know manufacturing uh, companies with hardware because manufacturing is one of the largest industry in Korea. so there weren't a lot of startups that, to be honest And when we had you know when you have those kind of meetups where startup folks show up, you meet about I don't know 20, 30 companies, and if you go to the next meetup, those same companies show up. So if you go through about three iterations, you literally know everyone in the industry. So that's how small the community was. There was very little venture funding. You might be able to raise a million dollars as Series A, uh, and that would take three to six months, and um, not a lot of annual investment for sure, unless you actually knew people who were somewhat rich. So it was very, yeah, there weren't a lot of resources, but it got way better over 2009, 10, 11. You start to see this word coming up you start to see angel investors grouping up. And then around the time when we exited, <clears throat> I think the environment has turned quite a bit. We were one of, I think, one of the very first ones to get acquired by a job a software company ever in Korea. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, it, uh, there was, I think, one other company that was acquired by like a foreign um, startup company, a startup software company. Uh, was an acquisition done by Google. So, even the MA acquisition, like there was no one to ask <laughs> what's gonna happen, how to prepare, how to negotiate. So all of those things, uh resources were pretty hard to combine.
0: Yeah. So so how how did you get into this? Like how did you think like, oh nobody's doing this here in Korea, but I'm gonna start a company and it's gonna end up well. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a
1: uh, a great definition of a crazy person. <laughs> uh, <coughs> so I actually approached from more of a, some I might call it first principle basis. But I try to look at what I wanted to do in, with my life. Uh, I've been thinking about the question for like three years before you know, graduating from university. Um, so I I I was so I worked at a company called NCSoft. I was very fortunate to have a such a wonderful experience there. Because I was part of a business team, but before that, I was a software engineer, so I sort of like knew how to, you know, make stuff and stuff, uh, things like that. And when, while I was working on the business side, I saw so many stuff that were very inefficient. Like people were uh, copying, pasting stuff into Word documents, and then recopying, pasting into Excel spreadsheet. Somebody had to learn about macros to, you know, run stats and uh, and to gather or, or collaborate. Uh, on a single data set. Uh, someone has to volunteer and download every single Excel spreadsheet they have created over a 30-day period of, across 100 people uh, and then open every single one of them, copy, paste, and like, things like that. So it was very inefficient. But if you have, have like a, you know, at least a minimal engineering background, you, you can immediately build like an online forum or online software tool that you can just have people just punch in the numbers and the stats will always be run in real time. Right. It's, it's not a rocket science. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> while I was working in the business side, I saw uh, the inefficiencies there. So I built an internal tool, almost like a side project within the company. And then that actually became the, the official tool of the company. So it was a really interesting experience to see how uh, a small technology, technology can create so much leverage for everyday folks. So that got me pretty inspired. And I, I I sort of thought, like, wow, like, I want to do this for the rest of my life, just build technology that sort of make people's lives easier uh, and get feedback on it. Because the feedback, I think, was the most important part. Because when people said, like, John, this is this is great, or this is so easy to do, can you fix this, or can we add this to that? And just that iterative process alone was so rewarding. So I'm like, I just want to do this for the rest of my life. So I went back to school, finished my studies, and then as soon as I graduated, like, I kept thinking about, how do I do this uh, forever? <laughs> Try yeah. to reverse engineer it. And then there were multiple routes, right? You can start right now, um, which was the last option. You, know, you could, I don't know, go to a consulting company. I mean, back then, it was a, I, I thought it was a rational thing to do. But now thinking about it, probably it m- might not be the best path. But you know, like going through mm-hmm. consulting, then do an MBA, then start a company, or go work at another tech company. And then, you know, go study in the U.S. and do things like that. So I drew out sort of like a decision tree for a different type of path, weighted it. And what I found to really be interesting was I also put in like burn rate and the risk of losing whatever I had as an important input. And if you do a simple math, it's like the lowest risk to running a tech company is if you start like right away. When you're not married, you don't have kids, you have very low burn, you can just go with go by with solents and ramen. Back then we didn't have so but sort of like, okay, like starting right now is the least, like the lowest risk thing I can do. Cause if I go through all the, you know, consulting and MBA and things like that, i don't married, I have two kids, this is my how my burn rate would go up. There's a social reputation now I have to keep, my parents would be disappointed. There's so many things that I have to think about. Whereas if I start right now, like I lose almost nothing, maybe a couple of years. But if something works, then you know, you learn how to ride a bike, sort of. So long story short, I think it's the most low lowest risk thing that I could do at the moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you calculated all that with the the a decision tree and a, and a and a and an excel sheet, et cetera, right?
1: Yeah. Uh it was actually a pretty long thought process. I did it I came back to school, finished my study over the course of like two and a half years, you know. Uh, graduated. So while over the course of 20 half years I wrote a lot of the notes so that I don't regret my decisions and part of the process was that assuming that decision tree. So I think about one year over the course of a year uh, I was thinking about you know what to do with my life and yep that was sort of the result.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone that specifically inspired you in this process? Uh, a few. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the the founder of
1: the company that I worked for briefly. Um, but also, uh, there's a you know, pretty well known Korean billionaire, a gaming uh, mogul named Jay. And then Masayoshi Son, the SoftBank. Back then, he was, I don't think he was that globally famous. But I read a biography of him, and that really was inspiring. Richard Branson was also pretty cool. But um, but I guess Masayoshi's Son was a little bit more of a uh, aligned. Um, yeah, sort of like a figure I I found to be very inspiring, but now he's doing he's at a much larger scale now. So I'm like, oh, however you know catch up with that guy? But,
0: but yeah. Yeah. What what is it that you you kind of like most about about growing a startup? Um uh, you mentioned some things like like uh, building software, solve people's problems, uh get their feedback, improve it? Yeah, I guess
1: a couple of things. Uh, one is the opportunity to grow as a person is is just so rewarding. Uh, you get to meet mm-hmm. so many inc- incredible people, be able to work with them, learn from them directly. And um, <clears throat> so I guess just being able to connect with a lot of very, very smart people really quickly has been a very rewarding thing. And, you know, some sometimes, you know, um, Helping them join our company, that was like so so much fun <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and very rewarding. I'm very grateful for that. But uh, I guess <clears throat> when you think about, what do you call it, uh, did, did, you know, Daniel Pink's you know, intrinsic uh, motivation framework, there's three things like purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And literally, uh, founding and running a startup has uh, the highest alignment in all of those three factors. Like purpose, of course, you're starting this because you are passionate about it. You have meaning for it. Uh Of course, you don't want to start a company because you read something cool about uh, those industry and tech crunch. those t- uh, companies tend to fail miserably, not always but mostly so finding a purpose, your inner sort of calling uh is very rewarding then then two is the mastery piece where literally, if you start a company you you have to learn so many things and you have to be you know somewhat good at it that opens up a great chance of mastery and the last piece is the autonomy. And because again, you're running a small company, you don't have to deal with a lot of processes and learning about the system of the company whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of autonomy, especially in the beginning stage, when you can literally steer the ship too quickly sometimes. So you get that this all of these three dimensions fully checked, and uh, then there you have it. You have this intrinsic motivation. So
0: yeah. yeah. And how, how how does that uh how does being a startup founder how has it changed for you for you from the beginning of Sunbird to, to now?
1: Yeah. Um Wow. I learned so much. I I think I'm constantly changing. I have to change uh so much. But mm-hmm. I I guess one sort of way to phrase it, our our, our CFO. Uh, point uh and set a term like live the dream and i do believe that i i feel like i'm living the dream of course not saying that every day is a, a, a easy peasy kind of walk in the park but you know like when you, when i dialed back back in 2007 and 8 you know i was in korea out of this small you know, studio with a friend and just working and push, pushing out code and we were always you know searching uh, articles from Silicon Valley. think of a Y Combinator. I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. I, one day I really want to be there. But there was like Y Combinator was like the star that was far, far away. Raising money from Silicon Valley, so-called Sand Hill Road investors, ever meeting them was like a dream for me. You know, building a tech company that have a global users with, you know, great logos, whether it be like Reddit or just just really big companies with a lot of users. Like those are all, very sort of like a dreamy kind of things that we thought about back in Korea uh, when we had like no money. <laughs> so now I think about it, like I am actually part of that process now, the journey, like I am here working uh, with fabulous people, just, you know, literally talking to Silicon Valley investors every single day, not every, hopefully not every single day, but uh you know, at least once a week Uh and just, you know, talking to all these amazing, amazing customers and, tens of millions of users use us on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, a, it is a slog. and There's so many problems to solve, but uh, just if you take a 10,000 know, 10, feet view, bird's eye view, it's like, wow, I am sort of living that dream. It is not yeah. as glamorous as I thought, but I don't care about glamour, so it's okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's been fun. So a lot of that have inspired me and changed me in hopefully in good ways, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. what is it that you do uh personally nowadays like like how does your day kind of look like or what are the things that keep you busy oh wow <clears throat> so i look at
1: business in four different dimensions i call it 2pm framework people people product market money so it's as i see you're constantly juggling these four things right like market or slash customers, to where you uh, where you try to sell, but also talk to customers, talk to them, understand the market, find the vision, find a problem to solve, and then you sort of crystallize it into your product, which is a solution to that problem or to that vision. And to do that, you got to hire the right people. And to hire those people, you know, you got to have either you know fundraise or have a right business model, things like that. So uh, I think once you solve a certain problem, then the next problem, you know, it's like a it's constant sort of like a circle of life where uh, one problem comes right after or or sometimes in parallel. So these days, uh, I've I've been trying to focus more on, obviously, the go-to-market side of things, talking to bigger customers. Uh, Hiring is uh, one of the highest leveraged activities uh, anyone, any leader can do or any manager can do. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to spend more time in hiring, meeting customers, and just talking to our um, uh, product or slash engineering executives, Team about what is sort of like a north star for our product, uh, and what are some of the high level pro- uh, product ideas and items that we want to put in the roadmap. That's maybe not the immediate items we want to ship next week, but something that we want to you know think through two thousand nineteen. And what are some of the items that we want to deliver by when? Mm-hmm. So those, and open new markets uh, and position our company a little bit differently. So things like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Or where do you kind of see, like you're, you're talking about ambitions now and, and, and future plans. Where, where do you kind of see very long-term where, where Sandbird is going?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we actually have a <clears throat> mission statement on our website that says, you know, we're digitizing the human interactions for businesses. Because when we think about chat, chat, many people think of it as just a you know, feature where you send a text on screen. But uh, if you just you know, take a, dial back a few years and think about the, the first time when we had like a dial-up modem, the one of the first use case people built was online chat rooms. Mm-hmm. After that, it was like ICQ, IRC, you know, all, every single like type of uh, technology, uh, advanced in technology, uh, uh, people asked for better uh, communication tools and, you know, uh, technology. And I think chat is one of those things that, uh, exists because it is probably one of the most efficient ways to stay in touch and interact with people. Uh, so that's why your messaging app category is the most widely used app category in the world. So we think uh, the part of uh, a lot of human interaction being digitized is will continue as long as you know, our population grows um, and more and more people you know, get on the internet. <clears throat> I mean, and if you take a step further, you know, when you, for instance, chat with your significant other or someone you're dating or your family, sometimes you get into this argument. They're like, hold on, hold on. Like, let's jump on a call or, you know, let's meet up for coffee. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets resolved. That means there's still something that's missing from that interaction, you know, like whether it be emojis or videos or voice. So there's got to be a, a, a other layers to augment some of the things that are, you know, uh, I guess you could call as shortcomings on, on chat. So we're thinking of different ways. How do we make this experience even more richer and richer so that we, one day we can fully say, oh, let's, let's just chat. And then you can sort of have a real genuine human-to-human interaction. And then uh, after that, it would come a phase where things are only possible on digital media, uh, whether you know, sending a 3D photo that you can look around in AR or VR or things like that. So how do we make this experience even better so that uh, we can actually help that digital interaction become the default standard of human communication. <clears throat> so that's sort of our long-term thing. And to get there, we have a lot of product roadmap features, um, a lot of different different things to learn from customers. And we just need a lot of people to build out this vision. Um, so yeah, that's sort of our I guess longer term goal, but in terms of like actual traction, we've been growing like tripling every year for the past couple of years. So we're trying to see how how far into the future can we continue this rate of growth. And mm-hmm. um, That part's also pretty exciting too, because growth is not just dollar amounts, but how many people are chatting through our platform, how many messages are being sent through our platform, things like that. So,
0: yeah, it's quite so exciting. You kind of see that like the the impact of your platform more. Yeah, and especially when you meet customers
1: in real life too. Like mm-hmm. you're so inspired, because like. Oh, we thought you were just, you know, would it be like a million MAU with, you know, 10 million messages. Now, if you look at it like, oh, you're a real company. These are your, you know, vendors or customers or service providers, things like that. You you see them in action, I'm like, you're so inspired as you are actually making their lives easier.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. And is everything kind of like, because it seems like, like you see everything chat centric. Uh, it's to uh, make chat better, basically. Or do you also see Sandbird going like to other types of communication? Or is everything around chat? Like, even if it's a video call, it just comes from chat? Right. How does that work?
1: So, the, so uh, right now we are doubling down on chat because uh, we still see just a lot of on-tap opportunities here and a lot of customers who should be using us. They're mm-hmm. not using us today. We really want to help them. Uh, migrate over to our platform, so we think we have probably one or two good years of just fully focusing on that. But getting back to our mission, we think there's other uh, type of ways to communicate in real time that uh, that can, can be a great uh, augmenting <clears throat> factor to our chat experience. So we're also doing some research on those areas. That could be voice, that could be video. So we're doing some research on that as well. So, for right now, yeah, to your question. Uh, it's mostly focused or centered around chat.
0: Yeah. Okay. A bit more about uh work life stuff like um how how does your 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 day kind of look like like I I imagine you you work with Korea so do you kind of adapt your day in terms of uh, hours <laughs> with, with the
1: other yeah. or? so I I hope someone has like a silver bullet for this, but we have a 16-hour time zone difference between US and Korea. It's good and bad because good uh, because you you at least get a couple of hours uh, overlap, but Mm -hmm. bad because you don't have the entire overlap. If you do really want to collaborate with Korea more extensively, uh, you gotta work double shifts. Meaning, let's say you come into the office around I don't know nine or ten, work through whatever five or six or seven. You get, and then you start getting these Slack and email notifications when you're like, you know, four or five p.m. here. Then, then if you really want to um, you know, chat or uh, communicate with Korean office a lot, then you got to work until I don't know, it be ten p.m. or midnight. So, it is a slog. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's worth it because you are communicating more. But it's not so worth it if you're starting to hurt your relationship with people around you. Yeah, so you got to find the right balance and right cadence and things like that. But so far, I, we haven't really found like a super great silver bullet, so we're just trying to work hard and um, so that we can always be in sync, things like that.
0: So, yeah, are your working for- days like yeah. until 10 p.m. then, or <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, whole people don't freak out, but uh, on, on average, I go to sleep around 2 a.m. um, and um. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty long working hour situation for the past about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been, these days I've been trying to cap myself to work only or go to sleep around at least before midnight. Um, but it's, it's, it's been hard because, you know, it's, it's not like they're constantly pinging me in the, in the late in the evening. They are also aware that U.S. has to sleep. But sometimes you, get, you see them chatting in the Slack or you see an email that come in they're like oh I can help out with that you know like oh yes uh, I have some thoughts on that and you jump in mm-hmm. you're like all oh, right here we go again like my brain's fully awoke so uh, let's jump on, a, on another call so that's how sort of it works and uh, so I've been very blessed that I don't almost ever get stressed from work I enjoy I really really enjoy it mm-hmm. so that part's not, not really hard for me but um overall I can't like you don't you cannot expect everyone in the company to work that way and that's not how to run a company so I've been trying to get people to you know uh, have some more bring more harmony to life
0: <laughs> yeah 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 but I think isn't there kind of also a, a, a culture clash right there because I if, if, if I'm not mistaken Koreans don't I mean in, in Korea that you work quite late that you do long working hours and then in the US it's a, it's a bit more moderate
1: uh wow, okay again, you are on top of Korean culture, yes, uh sitting yeah. stream of I don't wanna stereotype, but you know when you read about these things uh, online from you know what's it <coughs> Michael Moritz or things like that P- people say like, hey, China work nine nine six well Korea, well, not you know, we're not like nine nine six we're maybe closer to nine eight five or nine nine five sometimes nine ten five things like that, a little bit better <laughs> but still, yes that's your point we do in general work um on average on longer hours but i, I think it's, it's a different culture so mm-hmm. here it's not necessarily a people when people go home like they shut off and they don't work it's like they you know have dinner with their family and they log back in and they work uh if they need to right so it's i guess more flexible and fluid and, uh, and the culture is different. Uh, also Korea and Japan, maybe Germany is very sensitive around time, even on routine things, not necessarily like meetings and client meetings, things like that. but also mm-hmm. like just you know showing up the office exactly on time, uh, things like that is uh, I guess more um, cherished in those um, cultures, whereas here in Silicon Valley, where it's less focused on manufacturing or you know things like that. Uh the, the, I guess, strictness around time is a little bit different. Of course, with customers' meetings, we're all very punctual. So those things do create a discrepancy in culture. But ultimately, um, I think I read somewhere, like, uh, was it HSBC? It said World's Local Bank. It's like you have to think globally, but uh, act locally. Mm-hmm. So we, we are also trying to adopt policies and systems that cater to local culture and evolved towards that direction. So, so we, we were working on those kind of things. Yeah. That's a very long answer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is, is there anything you do like next to work consistently?
1: Uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, a couple of things, I guess. I like, I like, I like reading books, um, but I guess that's almost a cliche. Uh, I do like cars quite a bit. Because uh, I, I don't think I fully matured internally. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I like I like cars that make noises and things like that. So I do enjoy driving the mountain roads and things like that. When I sort of feel like oh this is a lot of stress, then I go on a quick ride to the mountains and come back. I'm like okay this is great. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: uh, so do that.
0: Um, what kind of yeah. car do I have to imagine? uh
1: after selling my first company i went through a lot of different cars uh,
0: terrible ways to invest uh, like, <laughs> on,
1: never buy a lot of highly depreciating it's not even assets it's just things uh but yeah i generally like small cars that make noises and it's not good for the environment so i I know i have to transition to the electrics nah. soon but i know it's coming it's sort of like uh, old school in that
0: way for so
1: what, to, What's your favorite car right now? Oh boy, uh, there's there are a few, but I I do like overall the the German engineering kind of precision with you know, perfection and obsession over quality. So uh, brands like whether it be Mercedes or Porsche is a brand I like. I mean BMWs M2 series are really nice too. Obviously, if you go on, want to go up, you know Ferraris are obviously really really nice, but if i had to pick my poison porsche would be my favorite
0: yeah okay which Porsche is that 911
1: gt3 or gts i i drive a gts but yeah three would be a nice choice but it doesn't have a back seat so it's not really good for family but <laughs> <laughs> well, one can argue is gts even remotely good for family but i do think gts is a family car so
0: yeah you also uh, briefly mentioned you like to read books. Uh, what's the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, recently, I've
1: been reading the, uh, what was it? Stephen Hawking's latest book, I think was a big, uh, brief answers and big questions. Uh, that has been pretty fun to read, you know, just you know, getting a refresh on black holes on the latest in the quantum mechanics, just uh, frameworks around how to look at life and space and things like that. Uh, that mm-hmm. has been pretty cool. Also, uh, Elad Gil's, um High Growth Handbook has been pretty nice. Uh, I'm about halfway through it, so I try to read two, three books in parallel just to not to bore myself to death. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just read a lot of you know, science books, uh, whether it be neuroscience, evolution, cognitive science, psychology, uh, complexity science. Those things tend to interest me than behavioral economics. Um, just try to find patterns and rules in life that I can learn from, that I can apply to, whether it be business or human relationship, things like that. So,
0: Yeah. So really like the the kind of first principle thinking, finding it in books and applying it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I never really heard about first principle thinking until recently. Uh, But I guess, yeah, as as engineers, you sort of tend to do that because, you know, you don't want to create code or systems that are, overly complex that solves problem very in an inefficient way so you always have to sort of like make it into simpler and simpler and more elegant way so
0: that Mm -hmm. sort of makes you think
1: I guess what they call first principle thinking yeah
0: yeah is there anything you wish you would have known when you started out oh boy
1: anything all the stuff that I know today
0: (laughs) yeah obviously.
1: Uh, I, I mean like Things like people management is something that you just have to learn. I mean, some people are better with people when they're, even, when they're young. But uh, I was a pretty sort of like an antisocial kid who only played a ton of games. You know, I was a professional gamer, gamer in Korea when I was young. So I was a very geeky guy, um, not good with people at all, uh, just totally did not understand how people think and operate or get motivated. Um, so I learned it the hard way over the course of past decade. On how to work with people, so that has been an interesting journey. So hopefully, I had known that earlier would have made everyone's life easier. Uh, and like things like expectation management, you know, how to communicate with your, you know, not just your uh, people that work with you, but your investors, your family members. Just how to uh, set the right set of expectations and how to provide right set of feedbacks. You know, those happen things that I just really have to uh, learn by uh, just making a ton of mistakes. So that I really wish I had known sooner. But other things, you know, other things are, you can just sort of like learn things on the way.
0: Yeah. Last <clears throat> question. Uh, yep. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Best piece of advice. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: There are a couple of mantras that I sort of like uh, live by. There are no right or wrong decisions. There, you have to make your decisions right, of course, based on the fact that you have to be moral and legally right. But from a business perspective, uh, you want to make a decision when you're thirty uh, percent uh, with thirty percent amount of information, not t- when you're like, when you're 70 percent information. So, a quick decision is always better than you know a slow and right decision. So, try to make a faster decision. That's been a great, great advice. The other thing would be like, this too shall pass. Because as I a Founder, you you go through this emotional roller rollercoaster. I had a severe yeah. one in my first company. And when you raise your first million dollars, you're like, yay, I'm king of the world. I can go and conquer the world now. And you just quickly realize a million dollars is uh, money that you can probably spend really quickly just by hiring a couple of folks. Uh So this two shall pass. as in, you know, when you have great moments, make sure to plan for the future, don't get overly excited, but also when you have, like, really dark tunnels. When you're going through dark tunnels, you're like, okay, but as long as you get through, there's usually almost always a way out. So just keep persevering, don't give up. Things like that has been a pretty good advice. But overall, the framework I use is something called MicroMentor, which is everyone around you has at least one superpower that you want to learn from. So just focus on that, and don't try to look at the entire person because no one is perfect, but if you just look at that one single dimension of the person, that person is super has that superpower, and you constantly try to create a collection of superpowers around you to learn from. so literally thirty people around you can be like a thirty micro mentors for you so and then in that sense, I'm getting advice literally
0: every single day. That's great advice. Thank you again, John, for uh, being on Founder Coffee. Yeah,
1: this this has been fun. So thank you for interesting questions.
0: (laughs) That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.